You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 125. Hi, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So it's been about 10 days since our StagerCon retreat at the last weekend of February, and I hope you're still working hard toward your top three goals. So whatever takeaway you've gotten from the retreat, I want you to really focus on the three things you can really push forward in the next 30 days, okay? I think a lot of times people are hung up about creating big results, but actually if you just make a small change every day incrementally, it's going to help accumulate into a big result at the end of your 30 day. So I want you to just focus on three and really push those forward in the next 30 days. All right. So it's really, really important to attach action to your dream, to your plan so that it will actually come true. I also want to thank you guys. I think I forgot to mention this in the last podcast episode because I was just still recovering from everything, all the excitement. But my heart is really full. I mean, I started Sage more in 2006 and now it's the 15th year. Thank you so much for those of you who have participated in celebrating with us through the giveaway and through SageCon retreat last month. But also, I just really appreciate you for being with us for so long, whether you're a longtime podcast listener or you're just listening to the podcast, the podcast really has changed my life. And recently, I was interviewed by Foxy Home Staging Company in Australia, and I actually talk about entrepreneurship and how I start building my home staging business. So I'll link that in the show notes for you to look at as well, if you're interested in listening to that episode. But anyway, I just want to really thank you for participating and also showing up for your home staging business and supporting our school throughout all this time. It really means a lot to me and I'm very grateful for you. Anyway, enough for the mushy stuff, but I just want to introduce Alicia, who's our guest for today's podcast. She's actually one of our students from our first class of the six-figure four-point course. So that course has evolved quite a bit. Now it's a 12-month mentorship and mastermind program. But it really still really focused on the business foundation for any home staging business owner. So it goes through the systems, marketing, logistics, pricing, and also operations and legal. And then we also talk about workflows and systems and just building things that you can really rinse and repeat in your business. So then you can just fine tune as you go. So yeah, so it's a really solid business foundation course. And Alicia's gone through that and her business has changed a lot in the past few years. She's going to talk about them on the show. I think really this is a really good episode for you to listen to if you're a home stager or in the process of building your home staging business in the beginning phase of your home staging business career. Because Alicia has a really great way of breaking things down. And then also, I just love her passion about the home staging business. Like me, she's also a fellow business nerd. So she's really great with sales and management. And you'll see too, that's from her past background from sales. But if you never had a sales background, not to worry. These skills are trainable. You can definitely learn that and build that in your home staging business. So Alicia is a New York native and a Colorado lover who has lived in the front range since 1999. She removed to Denver to dance with the Colorado Ballet, which is something I did not know at all. This is probably why Alicia has a, such a beautiful artistic vision that's really applied from her previous creative career. And she eventually finished her schooling at the University of Denver with a master in public policy with a desire to help people. 
all in the meanwhile working in various degrees of sales and management positions because she had such a strong passion for business. She settled down in Colorado Springs with her husband, Dan, and their daughters, Madison and Sage. So her company, Modern Interior Staging Company, is a full expression of who she is, melding artistry, public spiritness, and business all together into a full-time occupation that she really enjoys. And I think you'll really hear from Alicia's voice as well, how passionate she's about home staging business and how passionate she's about being a mom as well and really make the home staging business work for her. So I think this is a really good episode for you to listen to, and I hope you feel inspired by Alicia's journey. And Alicia is actually also one of our winners from last year of our International Home Staging Awards. She won it in the business plan category. So our International Home Staging Awards early bird submission is going to go live in just a few days. Once that goes up, we will announce it through our newsletter as well and on our website and through our social media so that you can start entering or thinking about the projects you want to enter as well because we're just at the early bird submission. The actual deadline is actually not until probably I think the regular submission deadline is around the end of May. So you have a while to really pull your projects together and think about what you want to submit. But I definitely encourage you to take advantage of the early bird since, you know, early bird gets all the worms and you can definitely save a little bit on your submission as well. All right. So that's it for today's introduction. And let's start the show now. so much Alicia for joining us today on the show. I'm super excited because I'm really happy that you're doing so well with your home staging business. You're one of our first students of our six year four plan course. So it's nice to see how you progress in the last few years because I also follow you on social media. You also were one of our award winners from our International Home Stage Award this year. So before we get started, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get started in staging? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is kind of fun. I really liked your course. Yeah, I was in your first class, I think. So my background, so I kind of have a weird, we all have our own like little journeys. I was originally a ballet dancer. So I moved to Colorado, did some Colorado ballet. And then I have a master's in public policy. And then I was in sales and management for a while. So this whole little smattering of things but I always had a passion for design and I was always decorating things. Always won like best design in my like, dorm room and stuff. <laughs> and so it was actually on my honeymoon in 2012. I read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week, which is like a really good book. You and read that during your honeymoon. I know, I read weird things all the time. <laughs> my husband and I are nerdy. <laughs> I was reading that and really got me thinking how I'd love to own my own business. So I dabbled with another business that didn't do so great. <laughs> and then kept thinking like, oh, I want to do design stuff, but didn't know how I could do that. And then actually we had a couple investment properties that we flipped and had some rentals I was managing. We ended up moving and my husband gave me a challenge. What if you can sell this without a realtor? So if there's a realtor, I'm here, sorry. But we did first sell by owner. I don't tell too many people that. Part. And so I was researching how to sell your own home, found out about staging, and then went through that process and had a successful sale. And then we actually flipped a rental that we had for a while in Wisconsin. And so I was out there handling that flip, and I ended up finding your podcast. <laughs> so... At the time, I had a little 
little two-year-old and I was pregnant and I was building furniture frantically staging this flip because I had everything shipped there from like Target and stuff building furniture listening to the podcast and I was like this is a business I would love and so that's actually kind of got me started and then I ended up having like a set to start with and so moved it into some other investment properties we were selling and sold stuff so I had some good experience I guess with my own things before I moved into the business side but I really love business like I, I want to learn more I want to become really good at it and so I'm actually like I think equally passionate about the business and the designs I'm always trying to learn more I guess so that's what got me into it <laughs> no I think that's really good I had no idea you found it through the podcast I actually always cringe when people tell me that they listen to my podcast I'm like oh really it's funny because I actually never listen to my podcast once it's published I don't want to hear it. I hate my own voice kind of thing. So I always cringe when people are like, oh, I listened to your podcast. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I love it. I told my husband that I was going to be talking to you today and he heard your voice so much between the course and the podcast I'd always be listening to. And he's like, say hi to her for me. So. Oh my God. That is so cringe for me, but thank you so much. No, but that's so cool. And then, so tell us a little bit about your home staging business now. Yeah, so we keep it real simple. We do consultations, occupied staging, and vacants. And we've pretty much stayed in that niche. I haven't done a lot. I know there's a lot of directions you can go with staging, but we've kind of just stuck with the actual staging. Yeah, but I think even within that, there's so much. I only did vacants, for example, but you did kind of a little bit everything. And so that's good. I think also now it's more flexible. You know, there's more hybrid business model we're seeing. There are stagers who do residential, but they also do flips and also Airbnbs because a lot of investors now are moving into Airbnbs. So, Yeah, I guess our focus has been a lot on really having the systems down for our staging services. So it's very consistent. And then we've been growing with our team so that they can also kind of bring the brand, you know, consistently in everything that they do. So, I love it. I hear system. I'm like, I'm so proud. <laughs> I know I have my way to say this was this book. Oh, yes. e That It's a like, really good book. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's been like a big part of how I operate. So, yeah. No, it's a really easy to read book. I also feel kind of it's like a one hit wonder. Michael Gerber's following books, none of them were as successful as e ever. Yeah. I just got, I've been working through e Mastery right now. I won't move on unless I master that section. Because, you know, you can read a lot of books and then just kind of forget everything. So I, I, I tell everybody, when I get to the end of this book, my business is going to be killing it. <laughs> it's going to probably take me a while <laughs> to make sure. Well, I think what Michael teaches really makes a lot of sense. Did, you, did I tell you I used to work for him for like a minute? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think I talked about it in the course. <laughs> But a very eye opening to see how far people took the whole EBIS, you know, because there are people who are making seven figure, eight figures. You're like, I got my business to eight figure all because I followed your thing in your book. I really established the business system. So making sure that I can be fired at any point in the system and the business is not going to get affected. You know, the breakdown for people who haven't read it is like you have different kinds of roles within a company, right? You have your entrepreneur, your technician, right? Manager and dreamer, yeah. Dreamer. So 
when I'm doing our task list, I'll put it in Trello, which actually I found from you too, which I'm obsessed with. If I'm doing a bunch of tasks, I'll designate which tasks they are and then try to figure out how to make my team do the technician stuff or whatever, <laughs> right? Just like, you know, I had kind of a weird year last year where I ended up having cancer and I had still had a business to run and I was taken out to surgery and I knew my team could still operate because they all had their jobs, right? So it's like, we want businesses that can operate beyond ourselves. Yeah. And so how big is your team now? So I have three, they can do consultations. I have one that can do some staging, some next level staging for me. And then they have additional tasks beyond those descriptions. So there's three, we have two movers that work for us and then a staging assistant that kind of pops in when she can. So That's amazing. So tell me, how did you find these people? And also, how did you train them also to take over for you? A couple different ways. So a lot of it's just like word of mouth or friends. One is from a friend. Actually, she had a staging business. You know, she wasn't really generating enough to really have an income. And when we crunched her numbers, she was making... I don't know, like $4 an hour. And you're like, you're not charging enough, right? But she hated like crunching numbers. She didn't want to do that. She wants to stage. And so I was like, well, I like the business side of it. So why don't you join us? Another person I did cross it with. <laughs> and so she just liked design and she always looks really nice, you know, dressed nice, which I think is sometimes a nice indicator that someone likes the way to put things together, right? And then two people actually I found on Indeed. I did a, actually I interviewed everybody like in March and then the world shut down. I had two candidates that I loved, right? And I hadn't decided who I wanted and they both brought something different to the table. One had more maybe business experience, a little more sales background. The other one, she is very personable and they were different ages. So, you know, you, you want to have that diversity in your team. And so I was like, ah, I don't know who to go with. Because I think they're both great and have all these possibilities and strengths. And so then I'm not making a decision right now because the world just shut down. I have no idea what's going to happen. We don't know what we're doing and how we're operating. And so I told them I'll contact them in the fall. But both of them contacted me back just randomly. And they're like, I don't care. Whatever you have for me, I'll do. Like, it doesn't have to be a job. It's just whatever you have for me. And so we've been able to kind of navigate. Like, they have other work, too. They're part-time. But hopefully the goal is to grow within the company to have something that they get to do what they love to do. And so it's good to have a little bit of flexibility as we're navigating. I, I think anytime starting a business, but also navigating this crazy, weird COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So how has COVID impact your business this year? Are you completely shut down or you're back at work now? No, we lucked out in Colorado real estate. It was an addendum to when they did stay at home where we were still able to operate. Like it wasn't, you know, other states, I think realtors weren't allowed to do anything. We had pretty low numbers, I think, because we were very outdoors, outdoors population. We have lots of places you can go, nice weather. And so our numbers stayed down. What we would do, like for a vacant stage, for example, we would, or my team would go, my movers, this is how we did it. Like <laughs> they'd pick up all the stuff. I draw pictures on the pictures of the house. So they know where to place everything. So they'd go place everything. They leave. I would go in, place everything where I wanted to go. And then my team would come in afterwards, like two people and knock out the stage. So we kind of broke it up. So nobody was in contact with each other. And there was space between us and like people. 
we broke it that way to keep everybody safe. And then what would happen with our market, what they would do is go under contract before you saw the house. And they'd go in and they had 40 hours to keep the contractor, you know, get out of it. You know, so it's like sight unseen buying houses. Interesting. Yeah. And so is the market pretty hot still or is around holiday time? This is November now. So how is it going? So we're in Colorado Springs. We're an hour south of Denver. So we have kind of an insane market right now. I think we're one of the top five because we're in this weird niche of not being in a huge city, but we're close. Our average days on market right now are 21 days. And then our average price point right now is 430000 So we don't have a very high price market. See, most of the houses I'm working in are probably more like 800000 kind of 600 to $1 million is kind of more my niche. But if it's under 500, houses are just flying. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Yeah. I mean, both the last two houses we did, so we had a house that was listed for eight ninety five. It went under contract the second day with multiple offers. For us, that's not our seller's market. Like it's above it, but it's still going fast. That's so. cool. When you first started your staging business, how did you get your first client? Well, here's a Tim Ferriss thing that kind of initiated this. So in 4-Hour Workweek, he talks about having kind of like the balls to go for the big thing. So his challenge is like, who could you get on the phone? Like think of someone famous. Like you're like, I want to talk to Like in my case, I'd be like, I want to talk to some Tim Ferriss. <laughs> I think he's fabulous. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, maybe I should try to call him. But anyway, the challenge is to actually call these people that seem unattainable and see if they're successful, right? So how I did it with a client, I had actually just mapped out all of the real listings in our, it was like above 500,000. Like I said, we don't have a real high market, but those ones are more established realtors. And then I sorted by realtors. And then I looked at all the bio pages of those realtors. And I was like, okay, who has a lot of listings? Who has houses in a higher price point? And who do I think I'd like? <laughs> and so I picked this duo and they just looked like, I don't know. I'm from upstate New York. So they kind of look like people in upstate New York. I think I was like, oh, these seem comfortable, like comfortable people, people. And so I just went to the open house with him, the dad, and chatted with him. It was a, like a hailstorm. It's kind of interesting. I think it's always good to go out in weather because people have time. <laughs> there was no one competing for his attention at the open house because I was the only one there in the weather, the rain. And then we ended up chatting for a bit. I ended up sending out a, a meeting with his team. We did a little presentation, like basically when I decided this is when I'm starting my business, I did that. And then his house was the first vacant stage. So it turns out <laughs> that he was the broker owner of 200 agents. They put me on their list as their stager. I do their booths at their events. I'm the only stager there. He likes it because I don't stay behind the booth. I mingle. Like, and that's, if you do have a booth, get out there. Don't be the lame person sitting behind the booth. I'm like, they just paid money to be there. You better be making connections. Anyway, and I like a good party. So that's how I met him. And actually, I get together with him and his team every fall. And then they get wine from me and all that kind of stuff. So I make sure that's a good relationship. <laughs> so that's awesome. That was my first vacant stage. I just went big. 
No, but I love that story. I think there are several things in your story that was interesting. Like, A, you really did your homework. You had a huge spreadsheet of everyone and you looked them up before you went. And then B, you actually found the right time because during open house, like you said, if it's like a rainstorm, the weather's crappy, no one's going to show up. So it's like a captive audience. And immediately you guys can get acquainted really fast because there's this terrible weather outside. Naturally, that's like a really good icebreaker. I think it's good that you basically at the right place at the right time and just being super personable and relatable. And then he was just like, yeah, I like you. You know, we should do business together. Actually, it's funny because his son, I hadn't met with him yet because they kind of had two separate teams within the group. And I ended up getting a meeting with him because I walked in during a snowstorm. No one was going anywhere. All the showings were canceled because it was horrible weather. But I was like, I went to the office. This is pre-COVID. And I wanted to see certain people and he was walking by and I knew him. I've been met him before. And so I was like, (laughs) I happen to have things on my, I have a little presentation on my computer and I have a little handout. So that's awesome. That's why you became successful because you are prepared, you know, at any situation. Like you were just walking by, you're like, Hey, I know you, I know your dad, I work with him a bunch of times. And here's my presentation. (laughs) Yeah. So I got to seize the opportunity, I guess. And also go go for it. Like, I think having a good time when you're doing it. I used to be in sales, so it's comfortable for me. I used to do cold call businesses. Now that's a difficult job <laughs> and not as fun. You're just like walking in people's offices. Realtors love talk. They're so easy. They're like the funnest group of people. It's like a totally different experience. But I did medical sales too. And you're like, oh. You got to know a lot about like, I don't know, orthopedic stuff. Like how boring is that? <laughs> no, but I think that's such a good skill set to bring in into the staging business because I think a lot of stagers get stuck on the sales part. They feel really intimidated. They don't know what to do. And I think that was a really good story for new stagers to hear or even seasoned stager because that is part of selling. You got to do the homework. You got to know who your audience is. Yeah, and sometimes knowing about them just means your preparation is like what kind of questions you're going to ask. So if I'm walking into a situation and I'm going to meet someone for the first time, like how am I building rapport? I think a lot of people miss the importance of either with a realtor or with your home sellers. If you're walking into a consultation, are you taking the time to find out where they're moving to, why they're selling their house, how long they've been here, like get their story Because then people trust you and are interested if you show that you're interested. And also, like, if I'm working with a realtor, I need to know more about their business before I can speak to it. You know, we don't want to just go in and throw up facts on them because we're, like, prepared in that sense. But we're prepared, like, we get to know them. How do they operate? What's their personal brand? Are they known for somebody who wants to provide staging for their clients? Or are there someone who wants to just talk me up and bring me in like how are they operating and then it helps to connect what you offer with their needs right i think that's perfect and the other thing i really want to ask you and i love you're so open about talking about pricing so how (laughs) did you figure out pricing when you first started because i think one thing for me to talk about it but i think it's better for you to talk about it because you've been through it you started it and then now you're a few years in you're really successful you build out a team and so it's really nice, I think, for other stages to hear about your experience. Like, how did you find out about pricing and how did you tweak your pricing? Yeah. Well, I think it's a constant morphing process and you constantly have to be paying attention to it and looking at your numbers. When I was starting off, 
I did do like that first stage. I actually rented some furniture for that one. And what I used was I was like, okay, here's an existing rental business. And they give you a price sheet for the range that you should charge per sofa and that kind of thing. So I had rented a few items just because it was like a short turnaround because that's kind of how I operate. I want to like get the deal and like stage it and like go two days. You know, <laughs> I don't like to waste time. I want to get this thing done. And so I uh, used that as a guideline, which I think helped set my prices more realistically because here they came from a business that is operating and they're not undercutting themselves because the reality is staging as a business is very high overhead and it's not a very scalable model, right? You need more inventory to grow. So you have to have a structure that provides enough profit to provide growth if you ever want to get to a really solid business, right? And I'm still getting there with that even. So when it came to pricing, I kind of looked at those kind of prices for inventory to cover that kind of cost, then really trying to crunch down on the hours it takes. So in the beginning, I think everybody's like, yay, I just get to go shopping, right? Like, <laughs> I get to just, it's so fun. I don't need to charge for this. I'll just give it away for free. And it really hurts you if you don't take the time on the front end. My philosophy and how I'm approaching everything is, if I needed to pay someone else to do the job, how would that cost? And then trying to come down, and then you can always work on efficiencies, becoming more efficient to increase your the pricing better, I guess. But you always underestimate your time. And isn't that, isn't that everybody? We always just don't think about our time. We don't track our time. And we don't realize that, yeah, that one job or that first five jobs might be great. You went shopping, you had a great time. But now if you have a business, you have people calling you. When are you going to call them back? You can't spend all day at TJ Maxx. And to keep the business going, someone has to do your bookkeeping. You have to make sure you have marketing. Like if I'm going to meet, if you want to have business, you got to prepare for your meeting. So there's all these aspects of running a business that if you don't charge appropriately, you're not going to have a business. And I see that happen. Like I feel like some of our business just happens from attrition because you're like, well, yeah, of course you want a business. You charge $600 for a vacant stage. Yeah. And that's a true example. You're like, well, no wonder. For me, that's not even going to cover my labor. You know, if you're trying to load it all into an SUV, I watch posts all the time of people are like, oh, I was there till midnight. That's not a sustainable lifestyle. I mean, I can't do that because I have little kids and they're ridiculously hard to put to bed sometimes. <laughs> they always ruin my plans. You know, so it's like, how am I, I have to get a stage done by three o'clock so I can make school pickup. You know, you have, it has to work within real life. You can't just feel like your time doesn't count. I think everything counts. And so when it comes to pricing, it's like when I started looking at that, I think you had actually said at one point that it was like 19 hours of work went into your stages. I feel like we might have more hours just because we're probably not as efficient yet as we need to be, right? We actually just got another warehouse space next to our existing one, which is going to help with our efficiency. You know, especially I think in the beginning, things take more time. So you're trying to find that balance of I'm charging enough for the time. You also have things like your truck gas. You know, if you're going to use a mover, I hire my own movers. And then like when I'm talking to realtors and talking about pricing, yeah, this covers the designing, the pulling, the packing, the loading, the unpacking, the unwrapping everything, all the costs that it takes to do your bins, your right, everything that you use to wrap everything, the blankets, 
the gas to get there, then installing everything. And then you got to do that all in reverse, right? So most of the time, realtors don't see, or the homeowners don't see all the work that goes into the job. So when you're coming up with pricing, I actually made a little thing. So I'm going to talk you through this. Here's an example. So of a $2,500 stage, which to me is like minimum, minimum that you should be charging. I hear people doing $1,200 stages all the time. It's just not sustainable. It's no. just ridiculous. So when I look at my numbers, I'm trying to, let's see here. It's hard to see my own thing. Your labor and overhead, all the hours that are going into it, right? And then overhead, you, you know, the subscription that you have to Google Suite and Canva and things to run your business. You got to cover that, your rental rate. Then you cover your inventory. So this one's tricky and I'm still working on it, but inventory, you know, if you're putting in $7,500 worth of inventory and that's, this is a low end stage, take the time to take a job that you've done and price out every single thing. Also factor in tax, also factor in shipping, also factor in if somebody assembled the table or assemble everything when it arrives and unpacking. That kind of stuff really has to be factored in, right? And then if you're going to do a 15% profit margin and you also have taxes, you're going to pay on that 15%. That's what adds up. Now, when we look at profit, what that means is beyond anything you pay yourself should be profit. So that's the number that you can use to grow your inventory, to become a better business. That's also the number that if you ever sold your business, that your value of your business is going to be based on. It's the cash flow after labor, including your own owner's pay. There's a little breakdown. And that's on the low end. Like I said, $7,500 in a house that goes quick. I mean, right? I mean, that's an inexpensive stage. Yeah. So, no, I totally agree. That is my pricing breakdown. And hopefully I'll probably learn more and get better. <laughs> I keep wanting, I keep looking. It's not like, oh, there we go. I found the answer and I'm done. It's like, okay, now what else is factoring in that I haven't factored in, right? I know it's like a puzzle, isn't it? And I think a lot of new stagers, especially, they always want to know the magic number. I'm always like, there's no magic number. If I figure out the magic number, I'll be so rich. Oh my God. I would say just don't go below 2,500. We can't have an industry with people having business that are charging as little as they're charging because they're not factoring it. Like, yeah, you could do one job that way, maybe. But if you want a warehouse or storage, like you're going to outgrow your garage if you want an actual salary. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think a lot of it is not understanding how money comes out and also money, how money comes in. We know how money comes in because we get the check and it says how much it is, but we don't know realistically how much money are going out. And that's one of the things I still see people do that they're like, oh yeah, my husband's helping me stage. So are you billing for your husband's time? Yes. She was like, Oh, yeah, I should, huh? Because I was like, yeah, because if you were to hire an assistant, that's not your husband. You can't not pay that assistant, you know? You can't just be like, I'll do laundry, I'll cook you dinner instead. And that's not good enough for a real assistant. So then the client needs to be billed for that. And I think when you know your numbers and you know the cost, like to me, I'm not charging $3,000 on a stage and being like, yeah, now it's time to throw a party. You're like, no, I'm just operating the business. And when you know your cost and then when you go to present that, it gives you the confidence. It's not like you're gouging somebody. You're actually just like, say the cost of the time, right? 
that's $3,000, right? I mean, it's confident. It's easy to say the price. You know, you don't get a lot of pushback when you know it's like, oh, can we do it cheaper? No, because I know my fixed cost. To get me, you know, just to barely do the service, I already know where we can't go below, right? And that doesn't count the inventory that you want me to bring in. We have big houses in Colorado. They're like the mountain houses. <laughs> no, I agree. It's that I think people don't realize. Also, like you made a really good point. Real estate agents or homeowners, they don't really see how much work goes behind in escaping. And that's why I just wrote a blog post about it. When clients come back and say, can you do it cheaper? No. And here's why. Here's my blog post. Because I explain, I break it down. It costs us basically 80 to 90 man hours each staging. That's everybody on site and offsite combined together. All that takes time. And that's why, you know, time is money, unfortunately. So we do have to build accordingly. Yeah. Well, and also I get it with realtors when they're like, if you're somebody who's, a, you know, I know realtors are on here who wants to pay for the staging, it also has to work in their marketing budget, right? Part of their marketing budget. It could depend on the listing. And so it may or may not be beneficial for a realtor to pay all the time, depending on what their commission ends up being for that job, right? Because they have a lot of other overhead too. Like they have their broker fees, they have their marketing, and then, you know, getting paid for all the work they do in that job. So what I like to do with realtors is like, if it makes sense for your marketing budget to pay, well, then great. So I have certain realtors that are like, if a price, we have a certain price point that we bring you in on, and we know you're going to do an amazing job. And that's how we work, right? The other thing is I will present to any of your home sellers, and I do free consultations on my vacants at this point, just because I have a good close rate, it's worth it for me. I will present to any of your home sellers because it always benefits the home seller to stage. It's always a good return on investment every time, even at a low price listing. I had my own listing, which was a rental condo. And I use this example all the time. It was listed for 162 At that price, things go nuts. It was a rental I had, just a cute little condo, right? And putting in a $2,000 package, even with an investment on something at that price level, it still resulted in $5,000 because it went so much more over asking than even the comp, like using an exact comp next door. I walked away with $5,000 extra, right? That's the return on investment. So for the homeowner, I'd rather invest and come back with that, right? So even if you don't think as a realtor, you can afford to pay for the staging for your listing, it always benefits your homeowner to do it. So send us in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like your agents pay for the staging usually, or is it, it depends on the situation. Last year, after I looked at everything, it was 50-50. Okay, that's cool. And then I have some agents that will... They, so I always collect up front. That was your guidance. <laughs> all right. You get all the money up front. <laughs> Thanks to Cindy. And have the contract signed with the home seller or I mean, whoever's paying really. And then what some of my realtors will do is pitch in a certain amount. They might say, hey, I'm going to pay part of it. And they pay it at close. And that works out best for everybody, I think. Yeah, I think it's good to get money up front because also once they moved, where are you going to get money from? You know, they move out of state or out of country. You're just basically screwed with a bill. And then the agent's going to be like, oh, yeah. well, that's the homeowner. I don't deal with that. So it totally. might have happened to me before. <laughs> you have to pay your workers, you know, you payroll every two weeks. 
So it's like I have to pay my workers pretty close to the stage. I need that, the cash flow on the front end. So yeah, you had to make sure that you have the cash flow on the front. So how do you train your assistants and also your stagers? I'm a big checklist person and 17 hacks, those that workflow. Again, that was another you thing. And so everything's in a workflow. So for example, I have someone who's our D stage manager and our D stage process is in there. I can assign it to her. And then it's really not a lot of training because it's like schedule the truck <laughs> and then you send them a link, right? They know the login information. So it's not even hard and it's in the system. So it transfers from one person to the next if I have to. When it comes to like a vacant stage job, we have a checklist. Usually I'd always want to put a D stage or, or if we partner, it's always nice to have one person who's a little more experienced and then a new person together, right? then they can also help for our consultations we actually are just launching that aspect i have three people that i'm training sorry no four people i can't count (laughs) the four people i've been training they've been shadowing me for our reports consultations i have a pretty solid this is what we do every time it's the flow i'm really big on client buy-in so there's a really strong presentation even if it's just a consultation because I want a buyer or a home seller to totally believe in the process that I'm doing. And then it disconnects them emotionally from my suggestions being critical or not. So the process that was important for me is that my, you know, the consultants really understand the importance and are really good at communicating the why behind our recommendations. And so we spent probably most of the time doing that. And then my sales background, we did so much role playing. <laughs> it's terrifying, like in a room full of people, right? We'd role play, role play, role So I made them role play a lot. <laughs> Every time we'd start a meeting and you're going to do the presentation with me again. The other thing I did a lot of, which I think is fun, I use Thinkific and I'll put together, I'll do the trainings ahead of time like how we do our reports, where they follow me on the screen and how it uploads, we do Google Docs. And then I send that to them. I do a workflow for this too, of our training process. And I send it to them so they watch the trainings and they're trained before our meetings. So I don't want to train all in person because it takes up my time, right? So we do it that way and then we meet and then we role play. And so... Our last step right now, actually, that we're focused on is building their own book of business. So how they were going to go out and find their new besties or whatever. Because <laughs> that's like the fun part. No, I want I them to that. find people they connect with. I think that's important. No, I love that. I think that is such a great idea. And I love how much you embrace technology as well, because I think that's actually a very clever way to train your people. And something like a platform like Thinkific, you can actually see their progress. So you can actually check if they watch your training or not. So that's actually very efficient. And I like it because once I've made it, since we do have kind of part-time jobs, people have one of mine is going to go have a baby in April, right? So she's going to be gone for a little bit. So like if I'm bringing on people, I feel like I get contacted all the time. Everyone wants to be a stager, right? They want to work. <laughs> it's great. I don't have any jobs. But it's like, it is nice because I have a list now of people who are interested. It's not like I have to take the time to repeat all the same information every time we bring on a new person. Just how to disconnect yourself, right, from the process a little bit that's repetitive. 
No, I love that actually, because I think when you're too attached to that process, sometimes you just take things personally. That's why I make you guys write script in the course, because I think once you got the script down, you're just disattached. You know, you're not taking it emotionally, and you can just really respond right away what you're supposed to say, but in a very professional manner. Yeah, and I like that being that. I feel like that's kind of our part of our brand is to be very professional. It's not a hobby for us. We're operating like a business. And I want to come across and my team to come across. We take this really seriously and we're really going to do a lot with the money because we are asking a lot of money, right? It is an investment. So they need to trust us. Yeah. Uh, believe in that we can do it. But we got to love your good. Matter of taste. I want the client to be satisfied. Obviously, I will change up whatever they don't like. But sometimes you fall on that one piggy client that thinks they know best. Do you insert something about this in your contract? Yeah. So if you really take a customer service approach, I think what you have to, and you want happy clients, right? Really listening to them. So if I have somebody, let's say one, you want to price so that you feel like you're not resentful when you have to fix something. I feel like if I price correct, then, oh, that extra trip that I have to send somebody out there because they just want something tweaked. Like, sure, I'd rather just have that response. Oh, you want, I don't know, this one house we just did, they wanted two shower curtains. I don't know why. <laughs> but it's like so easy, right? It was so easy. We got to go, steam it, put it up. I'd rather say yes. If I can say yes, because we priced appropriately and we have factored that a little bit in, then I'm going to say yes. I don't need to prove anything. Here's another example is, I had a house and I'd done like a little, you know, wine vignette, right, on the this one table. And they were opposed to having alcohol. And then they also didn't like the height of our bar stools. I think they were a little high, to be honest. They were the wrong height for the whatever. Oh, I know. I did a counter's height for a bar stool table. But it was tucked in. Like, you wouldn't really notice it unless you sat down. Yeah. And I chose that because of the color scheme that worked really well in this house that we were doing. So he was a little bit, it was a guy, oddly enough, but he was like, oh, I don't know. I think you need to change out the bar stools. And instead of being like, I need to defend my choice, I'd rather start with, okay, we could definitely do that. But here was the reason I chose those. And then you kind of tell me what you think. So the reason I chose those bar stools is because the color scheme I wanted to bring in your space worked really well with those particular bar stools. When it comes to a visual experience, I don't see that there's a problem. Like buyers are not going to notice that. I don't think it's a big deal. But if you think it's a big deal, I'm happy to change it. When you approach it like that, most of the time they're just like, oh, no, I like the blue, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, great. You just have to, I think, totally be open to make them happy. The other thing is, I think, setting your expectations on the front end. I don't feel like I've gotten a lot of pushback or I've had difficult clients for sure, but I don't feel like it's been that challenging because we set a lot of expectations on the front end. So that's where your contact really saves you. You know, you're like, like flippers. You're like, God, you gotta be ready for me when I come. Like, and I know they're not going to be <laughs> right. So you're like really stress it and then double check and then call ahead so that you can do your job the best way possible. So I think when I'm selling a package to somebody, you know, when I'm explaining what I'm going to bring in, I'm pretty clear on the extent of what to expect. 
And so when you have a client that's like, well, I was thinking you were going to, here's an example. I have this one house that had a rotunda entry area and then a view on the other end, like a walkthrough through a living room. So when I went there, the client was a little bit like, well, I think I envisioned something here. And I, I kind of always approach things like, okay, I just listen, right? I don't have to explain anything yet. But then when I put their design package together, I was looking at the reason why there would be a problem with something there. In real life, that makes sense. A beautiful, huge, you know, when you walk in the door, this insane floral arrangement can make a huge impact. But for selling the house, we're not trying to sell a gorgeous floral arrangement. What I'm trying to sell in this case was the view. So when I walked in, what I saw on the other end of that, you know, when the view is this phenomenal view of the front range, like gorgeous mountains, tons of light. So I didn't want anything blocking that view. So it's kind of like guiding somebody to understand the purpose of why you place the things you do. And realtors will, you know, if I'm in this case, they were kind of like, well, we were really hoping for this. And then you're just like, well, this is the reason I did this because we're not trying to sell the furniture. We're trying to sell the view that comes with the house because that's the actual selling feature here. And the realtors, a lot of times realtors are like, yeah, we, that's exactly what we're trying to sell, right? We want people to be drawn into this experience. So I think like bringing people on the journey with you, but then being open to like, okay, you want something changed. I've never had anything major. It's like, okay, I'd rather just say yes. Say yes as much as possible. I mean, I think if you do a great job on the front end and set your expectations on the front end, you can avoid basically the time wasters. A lot of communication issues I really see is because of that misalignment in terms of expectations and what they're actually getting. This is why I think that it's really important to really showcase who you are in the portfolio to really set that expectations during your client onboarding as well. I think that is exactly why you're so successful because the clients really understand who you are as a home stager and what they're exactly getting when they hire you. I also like that example of the rotunda. I also tell them that before they sign and pay. I mean, sometimes you're backtracking, right? But hopefully yeah. when I'm sharing the vision of their house, it's just kind of taking them through the journey and our goals. Like that's the other two. Why I'm placing things the way they're placed. It's answering their questions or providing solutions before they have them. No, I think that is very fair. And then, so what exactly is your normal sales process? Because it seems like you have a workflow of that as well. And then you paint the picture for the client, it sounds like. Yeah. When we talk about pricing and then saying you got to go higher, we even want to get close to really having a solid business. You have to understand that, that it is a decent size investment, even though it, they're going to get a great return on investment. You know it's worth it, but we have to get them to understand the value before they're going to pay it. They're not just going to pay it if they don't see the value of it. So yeah, the front end, I think, is huge. <laughs> and then what do you think are some of the biggest lessons you've learned since you started your home staging business? So many things. <laughs> I still feel like I'm learning so much. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I don't feel like it's a past tense thing. Biggest lessons. Pricing is a big one. Constantly crunching those numbers and being like, oh, God, that's the reality, right? Good to Great, that's a really great book. I've just finished that. They talk about successful businesses are ones that are willing to face the brutal reality. I feel like regularly I'm like, nope, we didn't hit it. We did not hit the mark on that one. Nope, and I need to see the numbers. 
And I don't think even with the interview here, I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not, I haven't succeeded yet. But I guess the biggest one is just rehab, you know, you learn lessons by revisiting the last job. So what went great in that last job? What did I like about that last job? Oh, you know what? If I could just bring in a couple more trees, I feel like my dining rooms look better. You know, and trying to like hone in on details by kind of reflecting back. Challenges I'm having right now, maybe the lesson I'm trying to le- I'm learning right now is building inventory is a challenge because you kind of have an idea of your niche when you're starting. You try to cater to that niche. You have different people coming in. Like maybe you're like, oh, I got some business, but they will have this vision. And I'm like, okay, let's try it out. Like, I, I feel like that's a lot of what I do is like, you know what? We can try it and we can change it. I mean, I change my pricing regularly, for example. <laughs> you know, we're trying it out. We're changing it. You know, I can walk away from business. I don't have to have it. Like we can't operate in a desperate mode. But inventory for me is tough because you learn a lot of things like, oh, I can buy wholesale, but sometimes wholesale isn't necessarily cheaper than what you could buy at Target, but you might get a better table. So now all of a sudden I have higher end things because I've been buying wholesale. And so my Target things aren't going to translate well in our million dollar listings. And so it's like trying to make sure, I mean, I sold some inventory this last month just to kind of clean it out, but it's also tough. You know, when you go to sell your inventory, you're not going to make a profit on that sale. It's, you're probably going to lose money. The lesson I'm learning right now is trying to build the right amount of inventory at the right level that makes sense. I feel like I'm not, it's not a lesson I learned. I'm I'm like trying to figure out. (laughs) My inventory is such an art really, because it's never ending. And the trends change as well. Your business changes as well. I mean, you start with a starter home and then you move on to bigger and better houses or not necessarily better, but bigger and more expensive projects. It also changes how you position your buying decision as well. So it is a constant renegotiating, I think. Yeah. Well, and also there's a little bit of, you know, if you buy wholesale, you're buying nicer things, right? Sometimes similar in price to maybe a target price, but, or more, maybe, you know, you're still investing more, but then there's an opportunity to possibly sell it. People like love it. They want to buy everything. Right. So then you're Mm -hmm. learning this other opportunity in your business that maybe if you stuck with just what you know, right. If I just stuck with the cheapest things I can find on Amazon, I wouldn't be able to grow this other aspect. So it, it's, yeah, it's a lot of like nuances. And I, I think I tell my husband on a regular basis, I'm like, I have an epiphany like all the time. Cause I'm like, I feel like there's always like figuring it out and the next thing. And then I'm, a, I'm, I'm reading books constantly. So there's always something I'm trying to figure out. And also hounding people. I have like some friends in finance that I'm like, bribe them with breakfast or something or lunch. Can you look at my numbers? So I think the biggest thing is, I mean, probably that I need to learn is my business is financially solid and sustainable. And that's what we really want for it. Yeah, that, that's the number one thing. I think if your finance is not solid, you can't hire new people to help you. You can't buy new inventory. I love that you're such a numbers person because I think if you crunch your inventory number further, you will probably find that it's still cheaper to buy wholesale, I think. Because you're buying at a wholesale price, not at the retail price. 
So ultimately, it's still going to be cheaper. And then you can mark up the margin when you resell it as well. Because we see that a lot yeah. in stages where they just sell stuff on Facebook Marketplace, like their surplus. You know, because when you buy wholesale, you can't just buy one base. You have to buy 12 or whatever it is in the box. And so a lot of times people just sell their surplus furniture and then just mark it down from retail. So you still make on the back end, your profit margins. So. I've had a couple of things I sold did do that. I made money on them. So on the marketplace. So yeah, there's, it's good. But yeah, that's where you're like, oh, ding, ding, ding. Like, <laughs> And we also start seeing stagers selling them to Airbnb homeowners because they're lightly used. They still look really good, but you know, it's fine for Airbnb. So that's yeah. something you Yeah, we've done a little bit of vacation sales, but I haven't been, I like to focus on one thing, nail it and then move on. So. I'm not yeah. there yet <laughs> to target so, them. So my last question for you is what would you be your number one tip for uh, home stagers growing their home stager business? Can I give two tips? No. <laughs> yeah, two tips. So for people starting, I think the number one thing is really setting realistic expectations. And that might not be in like the dreamer mode, right? So we can dream big. I like to make huge goals, but then almost just on a daily basis, how are you setting your expectations to be successful and consistent? So depending on what phase you're in, because you might be entering it in different phases, like for me, I have a two and a five-year-old. So you have to look at your limitations that maybe your personal limitations, like my personal limitation, to be honest, is I'm not a bounce out of bed person in the morning. Like I need a full hour of coffee. So like, I will not schedule something at 5 a.m. <laughs> or even 8 a.m. I'm going to schedule things at 10 because I can do things in the morning, but I'm not, I don't want to show up at eight o'clock at someone's house. That's not going to be me. So like setting expectations with your personal limitations, not in a bad way, but just in a realistic way, I think sets you up for success. So when you set your schedule, guess what? You're not going to just be able to work super productively for 12 hours straight. You know, understanding productivity and how you operate and how your body works. You have to eat, you know, at some point you have to eat, things like that. So just like really blocking your day in a realistic manner. And then also limitations of where you're at personally. So if you're working another job, I know that you just did a focus on that, like how to add it onto your hustle. Block times, like don't give people available times the instant you get off at work. Give yourself a 30 minute window so that you can be successful when you show up, right? If you get off work at five and you want to do a consultation at six, then you have a little bit of leeway to maybe grab something to eat, grab your packet that you're going to bring, dress up a little bit. Like you gave yourself some flexibility and you know consistently I can always be there at six rather than trying to be overzealous and try to show up. Like I'm going to leave work and instantly show up then run to this appointment and then knock this out and I can do five appointments. And, you know, there's so many new things you have to block time for. So I think time blocking, setting those goals realistically. I know back in the day, I feel like I used to be like, okay, set it like in my twenties, it was big for some reason where you're like, I'm going to get up at six. I'm going to work out at 615. I'm going to work out for an hour. And then I'm going to write, you're like, you make this brutal schedule. And then you were like, go a decade trying to hit it. And you never do because it was unrealistic. A big chunk of time for me, I get so much done from 12 to three. Sometimes it's like nothing touches that time for me. I'll block it. And it's like, that's my window. I can always count on. I do online scheduling. So their availability is only I can meet you at one and I can meet you at two. When they ask me what time it is, those are the two times you can meet with me. So I set it up so that I can always win because I know 
I have childcare that supports my business at that point or whatever. So, and then I guess the second number two tip was like, don't set everything up to hinge only on yourself. One of my best friends is our bookkeeper. She has an MBA. I guess I feel like I underpay her because she's so gifted. But, you know, for her, she just wants to do something a couple hours a week where she's at in her life that works. I don't have time to do all of our receipts. But what's great is my profit and loss sheets are always accurate. But she's on top of adding those numbers. And it's just she's just a friend and I just hire by the hour. And it doesn't all hinge on me. She makes sure our taxes get filed on time. Some of those little nitty gritty things. It's like maybe like three hours a week that I pair to do something, but it doesn't all hinge on me. And so I feel like that makes you consistent. That's amazing. No, I love both of them. They're great. I love it. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about business, we don't only talk about the personal side. But the thing is like, if your personal side, it's not going great. It's really hard to do that on the business side. Yeah. Well, and you're going to burn out. I mean, you have to have time to like hang out with friends. I feel like when I first read about, I, you know, I'd read about entrepreneurs. I feel like it's gotten more realistic when you listen to female entrepreneurs because we have so much to deal with. But like you read these brutal schedules. You're like, oh, congratulations. And so Silicon Valley guys are making billions of dollars and they work 90 hours a week and eat pizza and live in hoodies. Great. Like not a chance. I'm like, I can never be an entrepreneur. I can't do that. I like to sleep. I like to eat and I like to work out. Right. And so, <laughs> and I like to have really I know it sounds crazy. Like I want to spend time with my husband. I like my kids. You know, I have friends. Right. And so if we don't want to be burnt out, we don't want to have miserable lives, then we have to make a realistic goal. And maybe that's, I mean, last year I was doing a lot of business and I was literally working three hours a day. It's not like crazy. It wasn't 50 amount of hours, but it was super productive because I knew that was the chunk of time I had. And since I knew I was limited because of other demands in life, that's what I did. It worked out fine. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I should probably try to limit my hours more. I'm more productive if I do. So That's amazing. I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. That was great. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.